We've seen our own children targeted by the police for no reason other than they committed some crimes. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK's 90.7 in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cozy Cottage Grove, out in snowy Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. Sunny Hawaii, 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, and up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Also coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, also buried in snow, GDPR Nashville, also buried in snow down there in Nashville. Hope you guys are digging out okay. And, of course, Radio Sputnik five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com with you. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we like to call the Bradcast. As ever, Desi Doyen is here with me as well, our producer. How are you, Desi Doyen? I'm doing okay. Did you survive the superstorm? Yes, I, I survived Snowzilla. Yeah. Because you live in LA where yes. it's 70 degrees. It is quite lovely out it here. Is actually, we we won't rub that in though. Don't rub that in. Uh coming up on uh today's uh, program, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder who apologized last week for the uh Lead poisoning disaster, the ongoing disaster up in Flint, Michigan, said uh, during that apology that he takes responsibility for what happened. Well, new evidence revealed over the weekend and new actions taken by the embattled Michigan governor, the Republican Michigan governor, suggest otherwise. We'll get to that. Also, speaking of new evidence, uh, new evidence that Republican presidential candidate Ted Cruz is an extraordinarily gifted liar. Don't know that you needed that uh, needed any more evidence along those lines, but we will have it. And some news of the one state which has now announced that they are canceling plans to use electronic voting systems in uh, in their upcoming elections. All of that and more ahead today, time willing, right here on the broadcast. But first, uh, well, last time we spoke, we described the storm heading towards the east as Snowzilla 2016. And I think Snowzilla, or as the Weather Channel calls it, Winter Storm Jonas, did not disappoint. It, in fact, pounded the eastern U.S., as predicted over the weekend, with more than 30 inches of snow burying some areas, as you now know. New York City and Washington, D.C. were all but shut down over the weekend. All federal offices in Washington, D.C. are closed on Monday. 
According to the U.S. Office of Emergency Management, Congress took the opportunity to call off business in the U.S. House for the entire upcoming week because, well, you know, any excuse not to have to work, I guess, in, in the U.S. House of Representatives. New York City broke its all-time daily snowfall record with 26.6 inches at Central Park. 30.1 inches was recorded at JFK Airport. Four other states, West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, all saw totals over 30 inches. Airlines canceled more than 12,000 flights across the weekend. And at least 30 people have reportedly uh, died as a result of this mammoth snowstorm. But hey, even though uh, scientists have indeed been warning us for years about the need to curb the emission of greenhouse gases that lead to superstorms like this one and other extreme and deadly weather, well, you know, I guess even though 30 people tragically died, it wasn't Islamic terrorism that caused all those deaths. So what are you going to do? Uh, this is unfortunately what we're dealing with, and it absolutely drives me insane. I got to tell you, when that uh, tornado hit over the weekend uh, or over the holiday, uh, Desi Doyen, that almost uh, hit your sister's house down in Texas. Yes, just just a few houses away. It just infuriated me because, again, people, scientists have been warning about this for so long and we just don't seem to be taking the kind of action. We don't seem to be taking it as seriously as we should. Uh, in any case, uh, you know, hey, at least the storm had the courtesy to hit after business hours on Friday night and over the weekend. So not too much business was affected after all. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm too cynical or too political in these things. Here to tell me whether I'm too cynical and way too political is Paul Douglas. He is a Minneapolis-based broadcast meteorologist. Folks should know him up there on our uh, affiliate AM950 KTNF in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, Paul has uh, more than 40 years of broadcast television and radio experience. He is founder and senior meteorologist at Eris Weather, providing tailored weather service for business, consumers, and media outlets. He writes a daily weather and climate column for the Minneapolis Star Tribune and serves on the Climate Science Rapid Response Team, CSRRT, they call it, which delivers highly accurate science information to media and government representatives. Paul Douglas, welcome to the broadcast, sir. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Brad. Uh, great to have you here. And and I do want to get into uh, a bit of these, uh, the political perspectives I, I mentioned. And, and you can tell me if I'm too cynical or too uh, political in these matters. But... Um, you wrote uh, that some of the stuff that you saw over this uh, this amazing weekend winter storm, quote, made your jaw drop. Uh, for someone who's been doing this as long as you have, I think that says something. What did you see during this uh, this storm that uh, I think the Weather Channel likes to call it Winter Storm Jonas? What did you see that made your jaw drop, Paul? I think uh, snow falling at the rate of three to five inches an hour such a huge expanse of two to three foot snows over such a, a, a wide area. Uh, there's little doubt in my mind, Brad, that this storm was juiced. Uh, you've heard the, the adage, weather on steroids, there, there really is something to that. Mm -hmm. I was staring at water temperatures in the Gulf Stream in the mid to even upper 70s. Yeah. Water temperatures in late January 
well up into the 70s, at least six, seven degrees warmer than average. The Gulf Stream is always warmer, but because we had a record warm year in 2015, because December was staggeringly warm out east, flowers blooming, cherry Mm -hmm. trees in bloom in Washington, the water was even warmer. And people may say, well, so what? Well, the warmer the water, the higher the water vapor above the Gulf Stream. There's simply more water in the air, more Mm -hmm. fuel. And this was the equivalent of pouring rocket fuel on a Bic lighter. Mm. Once the nor'easter did start to spin up, off the Delmarva Peninsula, it intensified into a bomb that was able to suck all this additional Atlantic moisture inland and hurl it at New York and Philly and Washington and all points in between in the form of very heavy snow. And it's consistent with the trends that we're seeing. Uh, It turns out 12 of the 30 biggest regional snowstorms since 1880 Mm -hmm have occurred in the last 15 years in Washington DC. And, and you know uh, and, and Paul I want to get into some of that and 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 these trends and what exactly the relationship may be to climate change, global warming and so forth. But bef- before we do I, I want to just focus for a moment on this particular storm because I did see uh, uh, your tw- tweet actually my friend uh, Michael Mann, friend of the show, Dr. Michael Mann who I believe you know yep. well. Fellow uh, Penn Stater. I- indeed. He had uh, retweeted your tweet, and I thought, that can't be right. Temperatures in the 70s for the Atlantic Ocean in January? Uh, is that Has that happened before? Is that close to normal in the 70s? No, it, it's not close to normal, uh, Brad. And, and it may have happened before, but in recorded history, mm-hmm. we have pretty reliable data going back to the mid-1800s. And it's a symptom of all the heat that is going into the world's oceans. You know, we're so fixated on the atmosphere, and rightfully so. You know, the weather is the pond in which we live in, mm-hmm. so it's it's only understandable that we kind of gauge, hey, is global warming real based on what's happening in our backyards at any given moment? I think that's, it's, it's in our DNA. Uh, you need to broaden your perspective, and I know your listeners mm-hmm. do have a broader perspective, but 93% of all the additional heat energy generated by this spike in greenhouse gases, 93% is going into the oceans. We are conducting an experiment on not only the atmosphere, but the oceans, and hoping that everything turns out okay. But, you know, we had a hurricane. We had Hurricane Alex Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago that hit the Azores. That is unusual for January, but it's symptomatic of, of what's happening. The oceans and the atmosphere both running a low-grade fever. Uh. And people come up to me and they say, well, Paul, what's two or three degrees? And I, I pause and I say, hey, when's the last time you were two or three degrees warmer than average? Yeah. How did you feel? You were right. running a fever and there were probably symptoms. Right. You know, coughing, sneezing, sniffling, rashes, whatever. We are seeing those symptoms now showing up Uh, in the oceans, in terms of heat content, and we're seeing the symptoms in the weather. And it's what tipped me off back in the late 90s when it dawned on me that this is not average. You know, we passed average back in the late 80s, early 90s. Yes, the weather has always been extreme. Yes, of course, always had storms, big storms, blizzards, droughts. 
But we're making these events even worse inadvertently. We're turbocharging droughts and heat waves. We're making rainstorms wetter in the uh, summer months. And we're also spiking winter storms as well. And so people say, you know, Senator Inhofe somehow thinks that snow somehow disproves the fact that the planet is warming up. If it ever gets to the point where it doesn't snow at all, uh -huh. the planet will have much bigger problems. Yeah. So we're, we're seeing symptoms. Well, and Brad, these symptoms are going to be harder to dismiss and harder to deny as time goes on. And, you know, the uh, you mentioned Senator Inhofe, and I, and I should mention, because I want to ask you about this, I know that uh, you're a, a, a self-declared moderate Republican, I believe. Uh, Remember those? Yes, I do. You're you're the one. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one. You're yeah, the one. The party. And an evangelical Christian. We'll get to that, because I want to figure out how Republicans uh, square the science with, you know, being a Republican, but on this storm, is this storm, you know, a after these type of storms and events, we hear, well, you know, you can't uh, attribute every storm to climate change and so forth. You could say that it was juiced. Uh, is this storm specifically, is it a record storm or is it a really bad one? In other words, I want to talk about the effect of climate change, but uh, it was this storm special in and of itself in any way or just one of those bad storms that we get every, uh, you know, few years from time to time? I think it's still the honest answer is we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. um, attribution is always tricky. It certainly rivals the blizzard of February 1996. Was it a one in 20 year storm? Was it a one in 50 year storm? I don't think we know. We don't have all the data yet. In terms of just the sheer volume of snow over such a wide area, uh, I think it does make this a unique, at least a one in 20 year, possibly a one in 50 year storm uh, for the East Coast. But, you know, climate science 30 years ago said that basically you're loading the dice, you're stacking the cards in favor of more frequent mm -hmm. extremes. And so something that might have come along every 200 years in the good old fashioned climate we enjoyed back in the uh, beginning of the 20th century might come along with much greater frequency every 20 years, every 10 years, every five years. So we're loading the dice in favor. We're basically speeding up the treadmill. Storms that might have otherwise occurred are, are happening with greater regularity and greater ferocity. You identify, as you said, uh, as a Republican uh, and an evangelical Christian. I think you're on the board of the Evangelical Environmental Network. We've had uh, the board's chair, uh, Reverend Mitch Hescox, on this program. Yes. He's fantastic. Good friend of mine. Yep. Yeah, great guy to talk about You know the efforts in the religious community to do something about global warming and ch climate change. But how do you square your scientific fact and data-based background with uh, being a Republican, when I think it's fair to say that the consensus, as long as we're talking about scientific consensus, the Republican consensus, uh, the view of the GOP is the global warming is, is not happening, it's a hoax, or if it is happening, there's not all that much we can do about it. How, how do you square that circle, uh, Paul? Well, I'm, I'm data-driven. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm on my fifth business. If you don't respect the data, you go out of business, you lay people off, you go bankrupt. And the data is the data, the science is the science. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian, 
And I think that we are called to be stewards of, of God's creation. God created, I believe God created something amazing, mm-hmm. and that we do have a moral obligation uh, to keep this gift in good shape and uh, so that future generations have the same potential and possibilities that we do. Mitch and I are actually writing a book, Brad, which, oh. shameless plug, uh, comes out late next summer, Good. called Caring for Creation, uh, an Evangelical's Guide to Climate Science and Health. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think you need to hit people not only in the head, but also in the heart. Everybody loves their kids. Everybody wants the best for your, for your kids, your grandkids. Why would you do anything? to make it harder for your kids or your grandkids. Well, I think a lot of Republicans, though, are worried, getting to the core of your question, they assume that dealing with this is going to grow the government. It's going to make the federal bureaucracy even more bureaucratic, more mm-hmm. regulation, more stifling uh, rules and regulations, when, in fact, the answer that I think uh, most people agree with is that the markets will unleash the innovations that we're going to need. And, you know, I refuse to believe that the country that cured polio and sent men to the moon and fought two fascist regimes simultaneously in World War II, uh-huh. mapped the human genome, uh, can't find ways to keep the power on and people employed and the economy going forward without relying on polluting uh, sources well, not of to, energy. Not to mention, Paul Douglas, isn't it the free market that, in fact, has gotten us to this point? I mean, I, I sense that the real real reason that uh, most Republicans, at least Republicans in the know, don't want to take action is because they don't want to change the way that a few dozen people, frankly, make billions of dollars. But it has been the free market that has created this mess in the first place. So the notion that, uh, you know, when I talk to Republicans about this, that they think there will be a free market solution, uh, again, that seems to be a, a square that can't be circled, that it's a contradiction. Uh, the free market caused this problem. Why would we think the free market will solve this problem? Well, fossil fuels have been the low-hanging fruit for, what, 200, 300 years. Mm-hmm. It, it was relatively cheap and easy to extract them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're finding newer, better ways uh, between solar and wind. We, we have the technology. We have the entrepreneurs. What, what's been lacking is political vision. And it's something that Ronald Reagan used to do very, very well. You know, he would paint a picture and he would rally people around a cause. And this You know, this is our moonshot. This is the moonshot for the next generation. How do we keep the wheels on the bus, but how do we do so in a way that isn't polluting in the short term, threatening our short-term health with asthma, uh, fewer chemicals in the environment, and threatening generations to come? And I think we do have a moral obligation to be serious about this and to come up with conservative solutions. People say capitalism is the problem. I don't know. You know. There may be a grain of salt to that. Um, global warming is sort of the effluence, the side effect, the symptom of growth and GDP and consumerism. Mm-hmm. But it's also a reflection. What's that old saying? You can't get a man to believe something if his salary depends on him not believing it. Right. 
you know, we have special interests, fossil fuel interests, trillions of dollars of carbon still in the ground, and the richest corporations that have ever been want to be able to access that carbon indefinitely. And so it's a classic. To me, it, it comes down to justice, or in this case, injustice, that the financial goals of a few somehow outweigh the common good, the public good, your kid's future, their kid's future. And, you know, you said something at the beginning of this interview. With climate change, it doesn't hit home until it hits home. And it's hitting home with greater frequency, whether it's historic drought in the West, whether it's the increase in flash flooding that we see east of the Rockies, Mm -hmm. uh, turbocharged hurricanes and typhoons in the Pacific, it's death by a thousand cuts. And so I think it's harder for a lot of people to wrap their arms around it until they sit back and connect the dots and look at the the bigger trends. But I'm, I'm still encouraged and optimistic. Again, we have the entrepreneurs. Uh, we have alternate sources of energy. We can figure this out. Just today, NOAA released an article that we can drop greenhouse gas emissions by 78% over the next 15 years with existing technology. It's deploying it at, at scale. Mm-hmm. It's, it's coming up with that plan. And I think you can advocate for solutions and still adhere to conservative principles of smaller government and doing anything and everything to make the markets invent the solutions we're going to need. Ultimately, we're going to invent our way and innovate our way out of this. And so I'm, I'm still optimistic that we're going to figure this out. I don't know if it's going to take a few more super storms, mega droughts, you know, a few more climate disasters. Uh, what is the equivalent of Pearl Harbor? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you, Paul, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because when we had this terrorist event out here uh, a few months back in, in San Bernardino, uh, and, and we lost a number of uh, people in, in this shooting, uh, you know, the news media, the corporate news media, the politicians, they went absolutely crazy, and I guess justifiably so when people die. Um but we see this happening. We lost 30 people in this storm over the weekend that we know of. We saw, uh, I think, about a, a dozen or more uh, in December in another storm. These, this stuff, this issue, seems to be a very real existential threat, not just for the long term, but even in the short term. And yet the politicians, the media, uh, you know, the issue doesn't even seem to come up in uh, in the presidential debates that we've had so far this year. So what will it take to get through to these people? Specifically, how do we talk to Republicans to say, yes, there are solutions. No, it won't break the bank. At least it won't break the bank, you know, the way uh, climate change will eventually break the bank if, if we continue in this direction. How do we talk to folks, specifically, how do we talk to Republicans so they grasp the importance of this? Can anything be done? I think so. I have a lot of faith in the generation that's coming up. My, I have a son in the Navy in San Diego um, who's 25. My older son lives in uh, Seattle, works for Cray Supercomputer. And they, they don't dismiss the science. They are evidence-driven, data-driven. They understand that this is the world that they are inheriting and that their kids are going to inherit. So I think, and it may sound naive, but I think it's going to take 
uh, younger people talking to their parents, talking to their grandparents, mm-hmm. and, and having that conversation. Again, this is where, you know, a lot of people that still deny the science, no amount of evidence seems to sway them. Right. Because it's, it's an ideological litmus test. Uh-huh. Oh, if I believe this, then I have to genuflect every time I hear Al Gore's name. <laughs> right. It means more regulation, EPA on steroids. I, I understand on some level that concern. And I understand that, you know, we have a debt crisis in this country. The federal debt is, is staggering. But what of the environmental debt? Mm. I just want to be sure that when my grandkids come to me, and, and God willing, in 20 years, mm-hmm. that I tell them, look, I did everything I could to sound the alarm. I was accused of being an alarmist. I was accused of hyping this. But, you know, it's only hype until it actually happens. And if you're not vaguely alarmed by connecting the dots, it could mean that you're not paying attention. You know, mm-hmm. ISIS is an easy boogeyman and a legitimate concern for every American everybody on the planet. But so is climate change. This is why the military does not, and that's one of the disconnects that makes me nuts. Mm-hmm. You know, our very smart men and women in the Pentagon yep. see climate change as a threat multiplier. It's already fanning the flames of other conflicts, other problems worldwide. Water shortages, where you can grow food, some of the climate models suggest that parts of the Middle East will be unlivable within 20 mm-hmm. to 25 years. There was a town in Iran, Brad, that had a heat index close to 170 degrees last July. Where are these people going to go? Wow. What do we do with refugees? What do we do with the poorest people on the planet mm-hmm. who will be the first to be impacted? This is why this is a, a religious and a moral uh, cause. Yeah, well, because it, the least among us, the people we're supposed to take care of, are the first. And it's not a 30-year-down-the-road thing. It's happening today. Look at the Philippines, you know, struck by a parade of, of Category 5 Superstorms, one after another, yeah. You know, as a Christian, I, I believe that we do have a moral obligation. We're called to be stewards. And uh, I, I just think... It's expedient and short-sighted and the definition of greed to say that the interest of a few somehow trumps the common good. And I have to believe that at some point common sense will prevail and that we will come up with pragmatic, uh, common-sense approaches that reduce our reliance on oil, the ups and downs. You know, the price spikes, the price dips. But but here's... I mean, why on earth would we want an energy source that is prone to, uh, to blips and to wild gyrations? How does that do any company or any individual any good when you can have these massive swings? Why on earth wouldn't we, we want to go to a more sustainable, resilient source of energy to power our homes, our cities, our cars, you know, we, we didn't come out of the Stone Age because we ran out of stones. <laughs> we came out of the Stone Age because we found a better way forward. And we have the technology. We have the entrepreneurs. What's lacking is the vision in Washington, D.C. And I tell people when they say, what can I do? Well, you can buy an energy-efficient appliance. You can buy an electric car. You can buy a hybrid. 
You can get an energy audit. You can buy local. Uh, but the most important thing you can do is vote. And vote for local, state, and federal elected officials who still have a respect for science. You can have a faith in God. You can have a faith in something more than what we can observe and still have a respect for science. I, I think, I, you know, I, don't I, think... I believe the Bible. When the Bible said, look, in, in Genesis, God made us in his self-image. It says so in the Bible, and I remind evangelicals, God gave us big, beautiful brains, the ability to think and apply logic and reason, and to have the good sense not to foul our nest. Mm. And we're going to be, we're being tested, and if if you're a person of faith or have no faith, it doesn't matter, because we are called to be stewards. I I have, uh, I'm quickly losing much faith, uh, I'm sorry to say, in in just about anything. I've I've got just a minute or so left here, Paul. You mentioned uh, an environmental debt that we have, that that is as important as the actual fiscal debt that we have. And it is that debt that worries me most, most. That makes me think, you know what, we don't have time to wait for the next generation, for your grandkids to to figure this out, to go to Washington, D.C., to explain to these people how, you know, what a mess we've got. I don't think it's a lack of vision. I think it's a lack of will in Washington, D.C., particularly, and I hate to say it, among your party, but you know, overall, it is a lack of will to get this done. This environmental debt. Uh, last thought here. If we took all of the measures that are currently called for by uh, the Paris Agreement, historic agreement that was just, uh, uh, you know, signed uh, at the end of last year uh, to reduce carbon emissions around the world in about 200 countries. If we took those measures by uh, called for by the Paris Agreement or were even more radical, Uh, as far as curbing emissions. What is your understanding as a meteorologist, there we go, how long would it take to reverse the effects of the climate temper tantrums that we seem to see right now with all of the extreme weather and so forth? Even if we did what scientists like yourself are calling for, is this all baked in the cake at this point that, it can't be reversed, or it will just take so long that the effects will get worse and worse, no matter what we do for a number of uh, generations now? I think, you know, to your point, there is additional warming in the pipeline. And what Paris hopefully did, even though it may not have the, the legal teeth mm-hmm. required, um, is slow the warming from 7, 8 degrees to 3 or 4 degrees, hopefully less than, than 2, but I think personally that that may be optimistic just based on the inertia that I see really more at a political level and not just in this country, but especially in this country. You know, the the Republicans in the United States are the only party on the planet, with the possible exception of Australia, that continues to perpetually deny the science. Mm -hmm. Conservatives in Europe have, have... basically acknowledge the facts, the data, and yeah, something's going on. But, you know, some additional warming is inevitable. I think what keeps me up at night is the unknown unknowns. We don't know what the tipping points are. We are conducting an experiment on the atmosphere, on the oceans. Uh, What we are trying valiantly to do, and I, you know, I have to give President Obama credit for 
making this part of his legacy. I don't agree with him on other policy issues, but on this issue, I think he has done the right thing. And by using executive order uh, at a time when, when Congress can't seem to get its act together on this or many other topics. So the question now is, can we avoid the worst case scenarios where the technological fixes can't uh, help us adapt to a warmer, wetter, more volatile climate. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that, you know, Paris was, was a good step along that road. But, uh, you know, I don't want to dismiss this. It, I, I'm certainly worried about it. I'm worried for my kids, your kids, your listeners' kids, and what they're going to have to contend with. Mm-hmm. And what people don't realize is that this is already impacting water supplies, where you can grow food. I know for a fact that the CEOs at General Mills and Cargill and the Navy are very concerned and taking this very seriously. Well, they... So I think the best thing you can do is make your voices heard. And, and you know, people like to point out this ranks 10th or 15th or 20th, but Americans aren't worried about it. And I get that. And until and unless your bubble is impacted, it, it doesn't become top of mind, front of mind. But that is happening with greater frequency. Well, I think we're just seeing kind of the tip of the uh, the proverbial melting iceberg, Brad. We'll see what uh, there were a lot of people impacted by this winter storm across much of this country over the weekend. We will see what, if any, effect that in fact has on those people and on those voters as you call for people to uh to vote against uh, those politicians who don't seem to understand uh, the threat of climate change, even if they happen to be Republican. And I'll add, even if they happen to be Democrats, we got a lot of uh, denying Democrats in a lot of the coal states around the country as well. Paul Douglas, I got to get out, but really great talking to you. Hope to do it again in the near future. Paul Douglas. Uh, Minneapolis-based broadcast meteorologist, and uh, you can read his work in the StarTribune.com, as well as at his website, PaulDouglasWeather.com. Great talking to you, Paul. We'll have you on uh, soon, not just to talk about your book, but to, to talk about everything else as things go forward. Thank you, Brad, and thanks to you and your uh, amazing producer, Desi, for keeping this in the public eye. Uh, this is a big deal. And uh, I appreciate your effort and passion in keeping everybody up to date. Thank you, my friend. Greatly appreciated. Paul Douglas. Check him out also, by the way, on the Twitters at P. Douglas Weather. All right, a quick break, and we are back with much more broadcast, including uh, new news out of the Flint, Michigan crisis, new Ted Cruz news, and, uh, oh, yes, the one state that is actually canceling their plans to use electronic voting this year. All of that and more ahead on the broadcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. 
You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I am Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We talked last week about Michigan Governor Rick Snyder and his uh, State of the State apology for uh, this absolute disaster that continues in Flint, Michigan, this lead poisoning disaster. Uh, well, we uh, learned a few more uh, details over the weekend. Uh, it's questionable, frankly, how much uh, responsibility he is actually taking for this and how much how sincere his apology actually was. I'll tell you why in a moment. But first, we've, we've got a few details now, additional details about his involvement or at least his office, uh, his office's involvement in the switch from the water uh, that Flint had been using coming up from Detroit, from the uh, from Lake Huron, the switch over to the Flint River, which had the corrosive water that ended up leaching lead into the pipes of thousands of Flintstones. Um, so here's what we learned over the weekend. A plan to use Flint River as Flint, Michigan's primary water source was initially rejected by a commission appointed by the state's governor, Rick Snyder, but... The governor's office overruled officials and carried the plan forward anyway. According to the Daily Beast, Flint's emergency manager, who had been put in charge uh, by, which we discussed last week with Connor Coyne on this show, Flint resident Connor Coyne, the emergency manager had been put in by uh, the governor, declared an emergency, put this guy in, uh, and actually a number of emergency managers by fiat, uh, allowing them to replace locally elected governors, uh, uh, government. In any case, uh, Rick Snyder put in this emergency manager, and that emergency manager rejected, initially rejected the plan to go off of Detroit city water and use water from the Flint River instead back in 2012. But Snyder's office overruled that objection and use water from the Flint uh, River anyway, setting in motion the chain of events that has now led to this lead contamination crisis. Kurt Gayette of the Michigan ACLU described testimony from 2014 that was taken under oath in which Flint's emergency manager at the time, Ed Kurtz, and city financial manager Jerry Ambrose admitted that the State Department of Environmental Quality warned that it would not be feasible to permanently switch water to the use of, uh, of the Flint River. Guyette uh, writes that uh, how could the river that was rejected as Flint's permanent water source in December of 2012 suddenly become suitable for consumption a mere 16 months later? Well, good question. Howard Croft, former Flint director of public works, told the ACLU of Michigan that the decision to use the corrosive water came straight from Snyder's office. In his ACLU interview, Croft said that the decision to go against the environmental departments, this is the state environmental department, 
uh, to go against their warning was financially motivated and that responsibility, quote, goes all the way to the governor's office. If the governor really wants to come clean, Guyette says he needs to start telling the whole truth, not just pieces of it. He went on to call for Snyder to release all of his email in this matter. Snyder has so far released... A couple of years of his emails, but they were hand chosen by the governor and only from his public account, not from his private account. Guyette says Snyder can help shed light on uh, all of this by releasing all of his emails from the government account and any personal accounts he may have used to conduct state business going back to at least as early as the start of 2012 when members of his own administration considered and rejected using Flint's River. So I suspect there is much, much more to this story uh, as as things move forward. Snyder is uh, not out of the clear by any measure yet. Oh, definitely not. Uh, one of the things that I have noticed in the emails that have come out, however, was that Flint, the Flint emergency manager, turned down an offer from the Detroit Water System to adjust the contract that they had been paying. Detroit Water offered to give them a lower price, and it would have saved millions of hundreds of millions of dollars over the life of the contract. And yet the emergency manager turned that email down, turned that offer down, and we don't For exactly some reason. don't yeah. know why. There is a lot. A lot. And that might be in those emails that Snyder has not released from the years 2012 to 2013. A lot to come on this, no doubt. Uh, in the meantime, while Snyder uh, has uh, <laughs> apologized and taken responsibility for the crisis, guess what he's also done? He's hired an out-of-state public relations firm that specializes in crisis management to help him out. Mercury LLC Bills itself, itself as a high-stakes public strategy firm, according to NBC News. Uh, they said, uh, Mercury said in a statement, that it is not being paid with state funds. So who is paying them to save uh, Rick Snyder here? There was no immediate word from Snyder's office on the scope of Mercury's duties, according to NBC, or who is paying them. Uh, Mercury has offices in New York and London, but none in Michigan. A Mercury vice president sent out an email on Friday with links to new stories that highlighted failures by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency uh, and uh, contained positive coverage of Snyder. Snyder had appeared Friday morning on MSNBC's Morning Joe and blamed career civil service people for, quote, terrible decisions that led to thousands of children being exposed to lead for months after the water supply was switched to save money. Snyder said, we have to live with the consequences. They work for me, so I accept that responsibility, and we're going to fix this problem. Does not sound to me like he's accepting responsibility. Certainly not. No. Uh, speaking of not accepting responsibility, Ted Cruz is a huge, huge liar. I guess you might have known that already, uh, but here is additional evidence that is quite amazing that unfolded over the weekend. Okay, uh, on Thursday, Senator Ted Cruz revealed that he and his family, including his two young daughters, are not currently covered by health insurance. His reason? The 2016 presidential camp, uh, candidate told the audience at, uh, at a New Hampshire campaign stop that his provider, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, had dropped all of its individual policies 
after Obamacare was implemented and that he was finding an alternative because, quote, our premiums are going up 50 percent. Wow, 50 percent his premiums were going up. He said that's happening all over the country. That's happening in New Hampshire. That said, uh, Talking Points Memo decided to look into this claim, and it turns out that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas did not drop all of its individual plans, despite what Ted Cruz said. Rather, it just dropped its PPO plans and replaced them with HMO plans. So they dropped the PPO, which is a type of health insurance that uh, is more expensive but more flexible because it allows you to use uh, out-of-network doctors. And then the insurance, uh, the insurer continued to offer its HMO plan even after they had dropped the PPO. And in fact, they moved everyone who had an HMO plan, uh, PPO plan over into an HMO plan. So this was back in July of last year. Blue Cross Blue Shield in Texas announced it was dropping the PPOs. And uh, Cruz then would have had months to find a different plan if he had wanted to before his coverage lapped at uh, at the end of December when he said he and his family no longer had health insurance. He claimed his wife was uh, really ticked at him for letting that happen. Uh, However, Cruz's assertions quickly fell apart claiming that his uh, premiums had spiked by 50%. Well, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, on average, premiums in Texas increased by only 4% from last year to this. In New Hampshire, contrary to Cruz's claims, premiums went up by just 5%, according to the HHS. Los Angeles Times pointed out that the premiums of uh, some plans in Texas actually decreased, and none of them increased by 50 percent. So Cruz was just completely out and out, totally lying about this, apparently. uh, They were uh, previously covered uh, before they went to this Blue Cross uh, plan. They were previously covered under a blue chip employer plan offered by Goldman Sachs, where his wife Heidi had worked before she took an unpaid leave last March to help with the campaign. And as well, Ted Cruz also has the option as a U.S. senator to get coverage through the Washington, D.C. based Obamacare exchange, where he would also be eligible for a subsidy of up to 75 percent, not from Obamacare, but from his government employer, from from the government itself. This was written into the Affordable Care Act that uh, members of the U.S. Congress were had to purchase uh, uh, their uh, insurance. This was added by Republicans, by the way, to the Affordable Care Act that they had to uh, members of Congress had to purchase off of the exchanges off the uh, Washington, D.C. exchange and that they would then be reimbursed 75 percent of that by the government. Now, far be it from me to explain to Ted Cruz, you know, what his many options are for seeking health insurance uh, out there Mm -hmm. in the marketplace, because, you know, like the rest of us, we have to go look this up and figure this out for ourselves. And there are multiple options. Well, uh, here's good news. He doesn't even need multiple options because he was lying. He had health insurance all along. And in fact, they had changed his plan from an HMO to a PP uh, from a PPO to an HMO at Blue Cross Blue Shield in Texas. So he was never uninsured at all. So he, it wasn't just was, a matter of him forgetting right. to sign up. He or... was just lying. 
He was just lying out there on the campaign trail, and the campaign had to admit it. Cruz has, in fact, been uh, automatically enrolled by Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, into the HMO option. And uh, this is according to the Wall Street Journal. This is not those liberals over there at uh, that liberal media, that lamestream media over there at Talking Points Memo. This was the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg reported on this because the uh, the Cruz uh, uh, spokesperson was forced to give a statement on this after the information came out about uh, how his claims simply weren't passing the smell test. So the Cruz family is currently covered by a Blue Cross HMO, according to uh ms frazier and the, have uh, been campaign. and have been the entire time right but not for long Cruz recently arranged to get a new policy that is closer to the kind of coverage that he had before he will be a uh, an enrollee in humana as of march one on one of their ppo systems that as it turns out is what will cost him around 50 percent more than he was paying in 2015 this change to this new plan that he has selected up on his own uh, accord of his own free will right and aside from the subsidies that are offered to users of the Obamacare exchange if if, if the Cruz family was eligible the center is also the senator is also eligible for insurance subsidized by his employer three-fourths of it would be paid by the government. The U.S. taxpayer. The U.S. taxpayer uh, would cover three-quarters of his monthly premium. So, what do you know? Ted Cruz is a liar from top to bottom. This doesn't mean you should go out and vote for Donald Trump. Or maybe it does. I don't know. I don't care. But in any event, uh, we'll take a quick break and we will come back with the, uh, the, the state. The one state that is canceling their plans to use electronic voting machines this year. That, I promise, is straight ahead and more. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Little black boxes in cute little rows A screen that says touch me so cheerfully glows No paper trail, a make-believe pole Cast your vote down the memory hole Little black box where your little vote goes Down and down the memory hole Oh where, oh where did your little vote go? Where did it go? Nobody knows Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our last few minutes here uh, today. Okay, as uh, as promised, uh, the good news. The good news of the one state that has canceled plans to hold their elections electronically uh, this year. So that's the good news. One state has decided not to use e-voting systems this year. That's the good news. The bad news is that state is Iran. That's right. The state of Iran has called off plans to hold the two upcoming elections in February uh, using electronic voting machines. A spokesman for Iran's Guardian Council announced this was uh, reported by the Tasnam News Agency last week. Speaking to the agency, the uh, the spokesman uh, Nejatollah Ibrahim Ibrahimian pointed to a meeting of the Guardian Council earlier in the day and said that the issue of using electronic ballot boxes in the upcoming elections was raised in the session and the majority of the Guardian Council members voiced their opposition to the plan. 
One of the main reasons, they said, behind the decision not to hold elections electronically is that the security of the new systems planned to be used for electronic elections was not confirmed by the related authorities. So there you go. Uh, Iran understands uh, that these systems aren't secure. Good old U.S. of A. has not yet figured that out. They haven't figured that out, even though, remember a couple of years ago, does uh, back in 2010 in Washington, D.C., they were planning to use an Internet voting scheme there. So they put up a test. Testers from the University of Michigan got in immediately, took control of the system. Oh, yes. And added the Michigan fight song and everything else uh, when people went to vote. And they also said when they were in the system read about it at brandblog.com, that they noticed that computers from China and Iran were also already in the system trying to hack it. Yes, because they got in there. The yep. University of Michigan Computer Science Lab got in there. They were able to discover that Iran and Chinese hackers were in there and shut them out. Right. And, and of course, play the fight song just for fun. And they and they called off the Internet voting scheme that had been uh, planned for Washington, D.C. that year, except people are still trying to do it around the country, including out here in California, as we talked about recently. Uh, and we are still using 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting machines in places like South Carolina, which has its primary coming up. We're using uh, unverified paper ballot uh, systems made by Diebold that have been shown to be completely hackable in the state of New Hampshire. In the uh, uh, first in the nation primary coming up in about two weeks, uh, in in one week, we've got Iowa. At least Iowa is transparent in the way they vote and the way they uh, hand count paper ballots on the Republican side. And, uh, well, basically raise their hands on the Democratic side uh, in, in those Iowa caucuses coming up. Back in June 2015, the Iranian cabinet members had approved a plan to hold the upcoming parliament and assembly of experts elections uh, in February using those electronic ballot boxes, but they have come to their senses and they will not be doing that this year. So they get it in Iran. We'll see how long it takes for people to get it here. Uh, last week, we also told you about this man uh, who who went to a screening of the ben that Benghazi movie, 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Uh, and apparently he, he brought in a gun. This was up in Washington State. He brought a gun with him. It's an open carry state up there in Washington. And it seemingly he was drunk. He fumbled with the gun. It fell. It discharged. It hit a 40-year-old woman who was seated nearby. Uh, he, he left the movie, was later found at a restaurant where he had also apparently dropped the gun. Well, we've learned a little bit more about this guy. Um who accidentally shot this female moviegoer at the Benghazi film. He told police that he carries a gun because he fears, quote, mass shootings. According to the Seattle Times, Dane Galleon is the guy's name. He's 28, 29 years old. He told police he carried the gun with him to the Regal Cinemas 14 on Thursday night because he, quote, was concerned about recent mass shootings in public places. So he brought his own gun. Police state that Galleon told them he had taken medicine for anxiety in the morning. He had a pizza and a 22-ounce beer before attending the movie, he said. But he gave three different explanations regarding, regarding what happened at the theater. His father told the King County Sheriff's Dispatcher that his son had returned home extremely upset, saying the gun had fallen out of his pocket before going off. 
But Galleon told the arresting officer that another moviegoer reached for his crotch. And that's when he accidentally fired the gun before fleeing the theater because he didn't want to be mistaken for a mass shooter. While being booked at the Renton police station, he told another officer that a man had been bothering him, but he refused to provide details. So three different stories that don't kind of mesh up with this guy. But hey, open carry state. Bring the guns uh, with you. Bring them to the movie theater. What could possibly go wrong? You can't be too too, too careful. There might be a, a mass shooting at any moment. Galleon's victim, by the way, uh, remains in stable condition at this hour with a, a gunshot wound uh, to her shoulder. Uh, $25,000 bail was set for this guy, and, uh, well, there you go. Well, you know, as the statistics show, if you're an American, you are actually more likely to be shot by a, a white guy carrying a gun than pretty much any other place or any other uh, action here in the United States. That's the way it's turning out in it. Uh, do we have time for... Uh, no, we don't. All right. Well, I won't even tell you what we don't have time for so you don't feel that you missed it. You'll just have to tune in to our next thrilling episode of the Bradcast, uh, which will be with you same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, you can uh, drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Or you can find and follow me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog. My thanks, as ever, to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Paul Douglas, uh, who, who was just great, actually. Paul Douglas of the Star Tribune and of pauldouglasweather.com. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>